Welcome to Russian History Retold. Episode 223. The Siege of Leningrad, Part 2. Last time, we covered the early days of Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union by Nazi Germany. Today, we cover the progress the invasion was making with a focus on the people within Leningrad and their growing sense of foreboding. We are now in mid-August 1941, with the German army nearing Leningrad's city limits. In the previous two months, over 300,000 refugees from Preskov and Novgorod flooded into the city. Over two million men and women manned the defensive positions. The offensive to capture Leningrad was stopped due to fierce resistance on July 23rd. This infuriated Adolf Hitler, who visited the troops of Army Group North on July 27th. He ordered Field Marshal Wilhelm Ritter von Loeb to take the city by December or else. The or else was to take place on January 15, 1942, when Hitler relieved von Loeb of his command replacing him with Field Marshal Georg von Kuchler. Kuchler would remain as commander of Army Group North throughout the remainder of the siege. Kuchler's actions during his time as commander was defined by his support of the Nazi party of Vernichtungskrieg, or the Planned War of Annihilation. Post-war, Kuchler would be found guilty of war crimes against humanity. He was sentenced to 20 years in prison. Kuchler was released in 1953 after serving only eight years. Before we dive into the beginning of the siege of Leningrad, let's find out what else is going on in the world in August and September 1941. In the U.S., NBC and CBS TV commenced commercial television operations. The Ecuadorian-Peruvian War of 1941 was fought. There would be a total of three conflicts fought by those two countries in the 20th century. Joe DiMaggio gets a base hit in 56 games in a row, and the Nazis' plan of the final solution to the Jewish question is completed. With Wehrmacht forces about 100 kilometers or 62 miles away, German artillery begins bombarding Leningrad on August 20th. The heavy shelling would continue for the next 19 days, ending on September 8th. The targets included industries, schools, hospitals, and civilian housing. Right before the siege began, Soviet propaganda machine was in full bloom. In a joint statement made by Klement Voroshilov, Andrei Zhdanov, and City Soviet Chamber Chairman Pyotr Popkov, they released the following statement, quote, Comrades, Leningraders, dear friends, over our beloved native city hangs the immediate threat of attack by German fascist troops. The enemy is trying to break through to Leningrad. He wants to destroy our homes, to seize our factories and plants, to drench our streets and squares with the blood of the innocent, to outrageous peaceful people, to enslave the free sons of our motherland. But this shall not be. Leningrad, cradle of the proletarian revolution, never has fallen and never shall fall into enemy hands. 
Let us rise as one man in defense of our city, our homes, our families, our honor and freedom. Let us perform our sacred duty as Soviet patriots and be indomitable in the struggle with the fierce and hateful army, vigilant and merciless in the struggle against cowards, alarmists, and deserters. Let us establish the strictest revolutionary order in our city. Armed with iron discipline and Bolshevik resolve, we shall meet the enemy bravely and deal him a crushing blow. But people in Leningrad, they were getting mixed messages. The government was assuring them that they had everything under control. But the rumor mills told a different story, as did the preparations ongoing throughout the city. Monuments and important buildings were being camouflaged and protected. The elderly artist Anna Ostromova Lebdeva wrote, quote, Should we leave? And if so, wherefore and how? What does the future hold? How does one start all over again somewhere strange, having abandoned the comforting refugee, refuge of one's own flat? Poor Leningrader, I want to stay and witness all the frightening events ahead. It is here that Soviet authorities made their biggest mistake pre-siege of Leningrad. As Anna Reid puts it in her book, Leningrad, Tragedy of a City Under Siege, quote, Failing to empty Leningrad of its surplus population before the siege ring closed was one of the Soviet regime's worst blunders of the war, leading to more civilian deaths than any other save the failure to anticipate Barbarossa itself. By the time the last train left on August 29th, 636,283 people, according to official sources, had been evacuated from Leningrad. This compares with 660,000 civilians evacuated from London in only a few days on Britain's declaration of war two years earlier. She further goes on to write about who was left behind. Quote, over 400,000 of them were children and over 700,000 no other non-working dependents. Really, the question that needs answering at this point is, why did Soviet authorities not evacuate more people? The main reason is that the priority of what and who to evacuate were the numerous industries and workers that needed to be moved east. On July 3rd, Stalin issued orders to move 26 defense manufacturers from Moscow, Leningrad, and Tula. Before the German and Finnish troops had encircled Leningrad, 92 Troops had 160,000 workers moved to the Urals, far enough away to avoid being targeted by the Luftwaffe. Even with all that movement, 2,000 rail cars loaded with equipment were stuck in Leningrad when the last rail line was cut off. At this point, you might be wondering why the children weren't being evacuated. Aside from a lack of rail cars, there was a deep-seated reluctance of parents to let their children leave. The first attempt at evacuating children was a disaster. Instead of heading east and due east, the trains filled with the kids were sent south, right into the hands of the Germans. Many of the trains were bombed by the Luftwaffe, causing numerous casualties. Even those children who made it out went through some rough conditions. Food was scarce. Disease spread like wildfire, and many were infected with lice. The trips on the trains that used to take three days now would take up to seven weeks, 
due to the German destruction of many rail lines. The story of Irina Bogdanova, a young child hoping to evacuate Leningrad, is an example of the tragedy that was unfolding. Quote, Though Irina, her mother and grandmother, had been given permission to leave, Irina's aunt Nina, a defense worker, had not. As they drove to the railway station in the Institute's truck, her grandmother suddenly recalled that she had forgotten a trunk and insisted on returning home to collect it. She then also insisted that there was no longer enough room for her in the lorry and that she and Irina would go to the station by tram. This resulted in the whole family missing their train. Back home, Irina recounts, quote, We sat on the sofa. Mama hugged me and said, All right, then. We'll all die together. So it was. Grandmother, mother, and aunt all died of starvation in February and March 1942. Eight-year-old Irina survived alone with two corpses for ten days before being picked up by a civil defense brigade, which transferred her to an orphanage. Interviewed 70 years later, sitting dressed in her best at a table covered end-to-end with beautifully presented snacks, Irina admits she has been, quote, been living with this feeling of blame towards my grandmother for my whole life. I think that she wanted to stay with Nina and forgot the trunk and refused to sit on the back of the truck on purpose. The paranoia of the Soviet elite was on full display by August 25th, 1941. The Germans were now only 40 kilometers away, with a direct road to Moscow being completely cut off. If you wanted to evacuate, you were considered to be a traitor, unwilling to sacrifice yourself for your country. Conversely, you were considered to be a traitor if you stayed. The thought process here was, why would you want to stay if you knew Leningrad would be abandoned? You were a collaborator for the Germans who would welcome with open arms when they entered the city. It was a lose-lose proposition for many inhabitants. As Reed puts it, quote, A table drawn up by Leningrad NKVD on 25 August gives a target number of 2,248 arrests and deportations, divided into 29 categories, from Trotskyites, Zinoviites, Mensheviks, and anarchists, through priests, Catholics, former officers in the Tsarist army, former wealthy merchants, white bandits, kulaks, and people with connections abroad, down to the catch-all diversionists, saboteurs, and antisocial elements, and simple thieves and prostitutes. One observer of the rests noted, quote, about a hundred people waited to be exiled. They were mostly old women, old women in old-fashioned capes and worn-out velvet coats. These are the enemies of our government is capable of fighting, and it turns out the only ones. The Germans on the gates, Germans about to enter the city, and we are busy arresting and deporting old women, lonely, defenseless, harmless old people. Fighting on the outskirts of Leningrad was brutal. The Soviet army was being pushed back inch by inch. On September 8th, the noose was completely around the neck of the city when the fortress town of Schisselberg was taken. All land and river routes were sealed shut. Leningrad was surrounded and the Germans were at the gates of the city. 
the siege of Leningrad was on. And Ed Reed describes the feeling of the people of the city. Quote, this was the beginning of the blockade. The mistakes had been made. The tragedy would now play out. With what from today's perspective feels like sickening inevitability. At the time, though, events still seemed to hang in the balance. Few anticipated the siege. Either the Germans would quickly be pushed back, it was assumed, or Leningrad would fall. People were being accused of spying left and right. The paranoia of who was a spy and who wasn't invaded the minds of almost everyone. Yelena Kochina wrote the following in her diary, quote, Yesterday, near the market, a little old woman who looked like a flounder dressed in a Macintosh grabbed me. Did you see? A spy for sure, she shouted, waving her short little arm after some man. What? His trousers and jacket were different colors. I couldn't help but laugh. And his mustache looked as though it was stuck on. Her close-set eyes bored into me. Excuse me. I tore myself away. Before pushing off, she trailed me for several steps along the pavement. But, event to me, many people seemed suspicious. Types it would be worth keeping an eye on. What few had known within the city was Hitler's ultimate plan for the former capital of Russia. As Elaine Feinstein puts it in her book, Anna of All the Russias, A Life of Anna Akhmatova, quote, Hitler had given an order that when the population of Leningrad had been bombed and starved into submission, they were to be driven out into the snowy waste to die, while the city was to be erased from the face of the earth. After the defeat of Russia, there will not be the slightest reason for the existence of this large city. At this point, with the Germans nearing, men and women of all ages were being conscripted into service to dig anti-tank trenches and other defenses around Leningrad. One, known as the Luga Line, was the Soviet defense shielding Leningrad from the German attack of Field Marshal Wilhelm Ritter von Liebs Heeresgruppe Nord. The Luga Line was drawn beginning at the Luga River between Narva on the southern shore of the Gulf of Finland and Lake Ilmen via Tolmachevo. The creation and defense of this line was entrusted to the general lieutenant known as Konstantin P. Piadachev's Luga Operational Group. Its goal was to prevent the Germans from launching a direct attack on Leningrad. Olga Gurchina, who was 17 at the time, and an anti-Bolshevik, wrote the following about being at the Moscow station in Leningrad, waiting to be transported to the Luga line. Quote, There were worrying reports of strafing and bombing coming from the trenches, especially from around Luga. But we hadn't been told where we were headed, and when we set off that evening, we were cheerful, singing songs so as to distract ourselves from the anxiety inside. When we got off the train at Gachina, it was already dark. We were to spend the night in a park next to the Pavlovsk Palace, but never slept since the Germans started bombing a nearby airfield, and around us everything droned and shook. We were made to get up and told to hide anything white and not to smoke. We started walking fast along a road already full of our units. The soldiers marched quickly and quietly. If one had made a sound, the other shushed him for being careless. 
None of us had any idea where we were going or why, which made it all the more frightening. We were all desperate for something to drink, so much so that when the road went through a wooded area, we drank muddy water from the roadside ditches. It is hard to imagine what was going through the minds of the people of St. Petersburg, not knowing what was going to happen to them or their fates. Gretchina found out that she was there for what she was there for when she wrote, quote, It was to dig anti-tank ditches, 1.2 meters deep, and breastworks supposedly one meter high. There were only tools were shovels, axes, and stretchers to carry soil. We set to work enthusiastically. The days were sunny and hot. We worked from 5 a.m. to 8 or 9 p.m., with a two- or three-hour rest after lunch. We were well-fed, but there was no tea, except for what our landlady made us from the lime flowers. Physically, it was very tough, and after two weeks trying to lift a stretcher, I suddenly found out I couldn't straighten up again. The backbreaking work was essential to the defense of Leningrad. When the Germans advanced to it, they were forced to change their plans and find ways around it. This delay allowed Soviet forces to improve their inner lines of defense, thereby saving the city from the invaders. Not only was the work hard, but it was very dangerous. The German planes would strafe the workers in the trenches. Yelena Kuchina would tell her tale, quote, Suddenly, the gleaming wings of an airplane blotted out the sky. A machine gun started firing, and bullets plunged into the grass not far from me, rustling like small metallic lizards. I stood transfixed, forgetting completely the air raid drill that I had learned not long before. She further goes on to write, Run! Someone shouted, tugging at my sleeve. I looked back. Everyone who had been working in the trenches had run somewhere, I ran too, although I didn't know where to go or what to do. Suddenly, I saw a small bridge. I ran towards it. Under it was a deep puddle. For a whole hour, we squatted in this puddle and didn't do any more work for the rest of the week. The Luga line, as I mentioned, gave the Germans some pause, but it was only a small one, although quite significant. General Georgi Zhukov ordered Voroshilov to counterattack the oncoming German tanks. It surprised them and caused them to head off the roads, and that they were not well suited for tanks. The thunderstorms didn't help matters. Mud is not a very welcome sight to a tank commander. The fighting that went on in August was brutal. Between the middle of the month to the end, the Soviet 34th Army lost 84% of their guns and mortars, 89% of their tanks, and half of its men. While Stalin was furious with all of the losses, the fact remained that most of the weaponry used by the Soviet Army was old and at times unusable. According to Salisbury's book on the siege, quote, when Marshal A.I. Yermenko took control of the 3rd Mechanized Corps, he found that it only had 50% of its authorized tanks, mostly old T-26s. He had hardly any new T-34s, which would become the workhorses of World War II, 
and only two new KV-60 ton tanks, which were superior to anything the Germans possessed. The 7th Mechanized Corps consisted, constituted on July 1st had 40% of its rate 120 KV tanks and none of the rated 420 T-34s. The Western Front entered the war with 60% of its allotted rifles, 75% of its mortars, 80% of its AA guns, 75% of its artillery, 56.5% of its tanks, and 55% of its trucks. The ratios in Kuznetsov's Special Baltic District were about the same. It is truly remarkable that the Soviet army could have held off the Germans given this information. Yet they did. Stalin knew that he screwed things up with his military purges during the Great Purge as well. On top of it, Stalin had a plan in mind. When his generals begged for more supplies, he would either reject the pleas or he would dole out just a little bit more. If they wanted more men, he would either reject the plead or he would send a few out. His plan, which would come to bear in the future war effort, was to hold back his reserves until the Germans were battered and weaker. Stalin was more than willing to sacrifice anyone, men, women, and even children, to put his plan into play. Millions would die. Tens of millions would suffer. One of the least known retreats in the war occurred in August. It was the Soviet equivalent to Dunkirk. It was the abandonment of Tallinn. Admiral Vladimir Trubutz was in charge of the operation. While the British had air cover for their retreat from Dunkirk, Trubutz would have none. While the British had to cover 50 miles to get back to safety, Trubutz would have to get his caravan of ships through 220 miles of enemy mines and Junkers 88 dive bombers. The 33,000 people, along with 66,000 tons of munitions, were packed into 238 vessels heading toward the island fortress of Kronstadt. The carnage was horrific. Admiral Kuznetsov described the scene, quote, The ships dreaming in the tail were sharply silhouetted against the background of the fires, raging in Tallinn. Erupting out of the sea, huge pillars of flame and black smoke signaled the loss of fighting ships and transport vessels. With nightfall, the hideous roar of Nazi bombers subsided. But this didn't mean that the crews could relax, because of the danger still threatened from the water. In the darkness, it was difficult to see the moored mines, now floating amongst the debris of smashed lifeboats. One person there described the number of mines as being as many dumplings as you would find in a bowl of borscht. Out of the 238 ships that began the journey, 65 did not make it, with a staggering loss of 14,000 lives. It was the worst naval disaster in Russian or Soviet history. Before we end today's episode, I have a poem about the siege of Leningrad by Anna Akhmatova herself, who will be getting a full episode and a matter of fact, a two-part episode later on this year. The bids of death are flying high. Who will now rescue Leningrad? Be quiet. The city is still breathing. It is alive and listens to everything. For instance, 
her sons who groan in their sleep at the bottom of the Baltic Sea, or the cries for bread that rise from within and reach up to the skies. The hard earth is without pity. Death stares out from every window. Before I end the podcast, I'd like to share with you my thoughts about this, about this four-part series. Emotionally and intellectually, it is the hardest set of scripts I've ever written. Reviewing the diary notes alone is to read about the fear and suffering that went on for 900 days in the years of 1941 to 1944. I hope that I'll be successful in conveying the peoples of Leningrad's emotions. And this is especially true of the episode that will come in two weeks, episode four. Uh, It was really hard to read some of these diaries and the suffering of the people. Uh, You know, it's, it's something that you should brace yourself for. And it gets worse in episode three. And finally in four, even after the siege is lifted. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, Join me next time as we really begin to tell the hardships of the people of Leningrad, which suffered through in the early days of the siege. So until next time, das vidanya i spasibo bolshoya.